1 Peter chapter 1. If you are visiting with us today, we have been making our way through the book of 1 Peter, moving very slowly in this book, intentionally, especially, especially in this first chapter, there is so much rich gospel truth, and we just want to savor it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look just at verses 20 to 21 and savor the truths that are revealed there about Christ. But as we read together this morning, I want to give a little bit more of the context. So we're going to begin by reading in verse 13, and we'll read down to verse uh, 21. But the focus for us this morning will be on verses 20 to 21. So Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 13, we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do not serve a Lord and King who is dead. We do not look back at a historical figure, some teacher of men who has died and who remains buried. But we serve Christ the King whom You have raised from the dead and seated at Your right hand on high. He is the One who suffered with men suffered under the wrath of God, taking upon Himself the punishment of sin. And yet His sufferings did not end with suffering, they ended with joy. And it is a great hope that we can have, Father, Your people, that in the same way that He suffered and was then glorified, so we also now who grown inwardly and who suffer in various ways and through various trials now, these sufferings are not meaningless. 
they will result in glory with Him. And so we have a great hope in Jesus. And I pray, Father, for us all this morning that we would look to Him. And in looking to Him, see our faith. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. John Newton is probably most well-known by most people as being the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, He's probably also known by others, a little bit more so, as being one who served alongside of William Wilberforce in the cause of abolishing what he called the inhuman traffic of the British slave trade. What he is less well known for, however, among most people familiar with his name is the over 1,000 letters that he wrote throughout his ministry addressing the spiritual needs and questions of people all over England. J.I. Packer says of him that He was perhaps the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. He served as a pastor for some 43 years, first in a village called Olney and then later in the city of London. And during his ministry and even before his official ministry, he became a great source of spiritual wisdom for many people and is still a great source of of wisdom. In one of his letters, he writes to a group of women who had been meeting with each other for the express purpose of stirring one another on to to greater Christian faithfulness. It was, uh, in essence, one of the early women's small groups. And and they're they're writing to him. And and, and they want to know, what's the best advice you could give? If if there's one thing that you could instruct us in, that you could tell us to do or to think, what would it be that we could be greater Christians? Newton wrote to them and said, the best advice I can send or the best wish I can form for you is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense, an experiential sense sense of those words of the Apostle which are just now upon my mind, looking unto Jesus. That you would look unto Jesus. And he wrote to them about how in this one little sentence, look to Jesus, the whole of the Christian's duty, privilege, safety, and unspeakable happiness is contained. He says when we can fix our thoughts upon Him as laying aside all His honors and submitting for our sakes to drink of the bitter cup of the wrath of God to the very dregs. And when we further consider that He who suffered in our nature who knows and sympathizes with all our weakness 
is now the supreme disposer or or the one who governs all that concerns us. That He numbers the very hairs of our heads, appoints every trial we meet with in number, weight, and measure, and will allow nothing to fall upon us but what shall contribute to our good. This view, I say, is a medicine suited to the disease and powerfully reconciled to every cross. There is not a single trial. There's not a single bodily illness or affliction. There's not a single persecution. There's not a single temptation. There's not a single habit. There's not a single decision that has to be made that does not need at the center of it the task of looking to Jesus. Filling your mind and your heart with the glory of Christ. To commit yourself obedience, to resolve, to make a resolution that you are going to obey God in all things, to strive to be holy apart from looking to Jesus will only ever result in failure. Perhaps even worse, it will result in self-righteousness. And hypocrisy. It's no surprise then that in the midst of a passage where the Apostle Peter is exhorting believers to abandon their former way of life, the, the, the culture, the beliefs, the religion that, that you've grown up on, the, the paganism of the world, He's exhorting them to abandon their former way of life and to be holy in the midst of these charges. He inserts a kind of poetic reflection on the person of Christ. Who He is and what He's done. Some scholars have even argued that verses 20-21 to are an early Christian hymn. While that can't be substantiated with absolute certainty, it is certainly the case that these verses have a poetic element to them. Peter has just stated that Christians have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And it mentions the name Christ. All truths about His person and Word. He has to take a moment to just look again and his readers again to just look at Jesus. And that's, that's what I want us to do. I want us together to glory in Christ and who He is. Three truths about Jesus in particular. Truth that I want you to see this morning is 
verse 20. He, the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, we've, we've seen this word before. We've seen it very early on in chapter 1. Foreknown. It's in verse 2 in particular, where Peter says of his readers that they are elect exiles. All, all of the throughout Asia, to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember when we were in that chapter, because at this present moment I'm reminding you of that moment. You'll remember what that means. That foreknowledge only means is known beforehand. It's, it's not just a matter of knowing facts before. knows persons, meaning he has relational knowledge of them as people, not just a knowledge about facts, not just about things that would happen in their lives in the future. He knows them. He knows you. He knows me. And it's the same idea here in verse 20, God for. Christ. He has an intimate, personal relationship with Christ. And this particular dates even the creation of the world. It's an eternal knowledge of Christ. But of course, unlike the way in which He foreknows His people in general, foreknowledge He has of the Son is rooted in the very nature of God as the triune God. But Jesus is not simply foreknown as the one who was to come, but he is known as the one who always has been and who always will be. God has foreknown him from all eternity because from all eternity he has been with God. The Apostle John made this, in fact, of the Word. In the beginning was the Word with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This Jesus, this Son, is no creation of God. He did not come into existence at a particular point in history or at any point in the past. In the same Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 3, He said, all things and without Him was place anymore emphasis that you could ever possibly make in heaven or on earth was make all 
Father in the presence of the Father before there was anything that was made. The divinity of Christ and his pre-existence is undoubtedly implied by what Peter says here of him. But it's also worth pointing out that who is said to be foreknown is Christ. You may be what I thought we were talking about Christ, right? But I want to remind you that Christ is a title. He could have said the Son was foreknown. And that in some ways is a title as well, but often speaks of his, his own divine nature. But here he says the Christ, the title, is foreknown. Is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed King. He is the king who is prophesied to rule over his people and to rule over the nations and to sit on the throne of David forever. He is the king who would not only deliver his people from their enemies, but deliver his people from their sins. And God foreknew Jesus as the Christ. That means that the plan of salvation, that the work of is not Something that sprang into existence as a to a failed project that God Peter is saying the precious blood of Christ that has ransomed you from your sin and that is the basis to live in holiness is no afterthought from God. It was God's plan from the beginning that Christ would be your Redeemer. It was God's plan from the beginning that He would ransom you from your sins. And if this is the case, friends, that Christ will that role forever even born, what kind of assurance should that give you? Your sins, as bad as they are, and as worthy as of condemnation as they are. And they are. Your sins are not strong enough to hinder God's work of redemption. Your sin is not a roadblock that God counters and can overcome in His feeble attempts to save you just sitting in heaven waiting and, and hoping that somehow something in you will change and then He can love you. And then He can give you grace. And then He can save you. No, He planned salvation from before you ever did anything good or bad. And if He has determined to save you and if He has made you an elect Exile, if he has caused you to be born living hope and made you an heir of the kingdom through Christ, he has done that at one time you would be a great sinner. He has set in knowing that in the future you would be a great rebel, you would be separated from him. By your sins, at enmity within, with Him. 
hostile to him. He knew all of those things. Despite your sin and despite your many rebellions against him and his law, it was his eternal, his son as who would accomplish their redemption. And nothing, not even a human will, can thwart His will. Your salvation, if you are in Christ, does not hang in the balance by the fickleness of your will or the weakness of your faith. I'm sure that many of us, if not all of us, can certainly say it certainly seems more often than not that my faith is pitiful. But thanks be to God that it is not the strength of my faith that determines my salvation. No matter how small it may be, As Peter said in the beginning of chapter 1, it is faith, period, small or great, that God uses to guard you until that salvation which is ready to be revealed is revealed. Now, if you look with me again at verse 20, There's a second truth that I want you to see. We also find about Christ. He's not only foreknown from before the foundation of the world. Peter says he was also made manifest. He was made manifest. He appeared. This here is a very clear statement about the incarnation of Christ. He who had inhabited eternity entered into His very own creation. He through whom all things had been made Himself took on the very form of His creation. He condescended to us. He became just like one of us. It's sometimes asserted by more critical scholars that the belief in the deity of Christ was a later development in Christianity that did not come about until the second or third centuries. As intelligent as many of these scholars often are, they seem to be quite blind to the text that is before them. Because here we have a very clear statement from the Apostle Peter who was with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. A very clear statement that Peter appeared, manifest, occurs without faith. There is only one person who is ever said to have appeared, and that's Jesus. Yes, he was. He was conceived, no doubt, supernaturally, a virgin. Yes, he was fully human, just like you and me. But there is no other person who has ever lived who can be said 
to have heard because his pre-existence. Peter is stating unequivocally that the very one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world is the same one who has now in these last times appeared. In the incarnation, the Son of God who made human flesh became human flesh. He became like us. God who dwells in unapproachable light. The unapproachable became approachable. He who could not be seen was seen. He who could not be touched was touched by many. The Apostle John describes the incarnation of Christ like this in 1 John chapter 1. He speaks of Jesus as the life, as the eternal life. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus Christ, who is Himself eternal life, John says, was Manifest to us. In His incarnation, He was revealed in the flesh to the world. But there's also another sense in which Christ is made manifest. He's not just made manifest in His incarnation, but He's also made manifest in and through the preaching of the Gospel. The living Word. Notice again that Peter says He was made manifest in the last times of you who through Him believe in God. These believers that Peter is writing to never saw Jesus. They never saw Him with their own eyes. They never touched Him with their own hands. They never witnessed His human form as Peter had. And yet, as Peter said of them back in verse 8, though they had not seen Him, they loved Him. And they believed in Him. They trusted in Him. In verse 21, again, through Him... They are believers in God. Well, how do they know Him? How can you know someone you've never seen? It's through the preaching of the Gospel. They know Him, as verse 12 says, through those who preached the good news to you. through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. The Gospel is how Jesus is made manifest to us even. They know 
And we can know Him through the preaching of the Word. Preaching of the Gospel is to be the means by which is revealed generations. And therefore, the preaching of the Gospel is no ordinary task. It's not just a, a lecture. It's not the same thing as going into a university classroom and listening to a teacher Sunday. It's not a it's not a coach session. Because God has made it different. He has set it apart. The true preaching of the God divine work through which Christ is revealed through human instruments. It is human in that men stand before other men and declare Christ in words. But it is divine in that God uses the Gospel to manifest His Son. The Ephesians chapter 1 is that it had the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You've seen Jesus in the Gospel. Again, if you look again at, at verse 12, verse 12 speaks of those who preach the good news to you, the human element, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the divine work. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says of the hope and the promise of eternal life that is found only in the person of Christ. He says that God at the proper His Word through the preaching have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Christ, Verse 16, Paul says, which he is not ashamed to preach power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Power of God. This was not only made manifest in His incarnation and in His earthly ministry, He is made manifest and desires to be known through the Word of the Gospel preached in the power of the Spirit Friends, the most obvious implication of all of this is that you can know Him. Who trust in Him. You can know Him 
through the gospel and through his living word. Many think of themselves. I speak Christ to have lived in the first century and to have been able to know Jesus, to speak with him, to hear his Christ, to have been able to have burdens upon him in I understand that sentiment. Based, we desire if you're a believer in Christ, we desire for the day to come when we will be able to see him face to face. But it's worth being reminded that the apostles themselves had that great privilege. And yet, listen to what Jesus says to them in John 16, verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, then to you by Christ in your conversion, it is to your great advantage. You are counted more privileged in your knowledge of Christ than even the prophets of old. Because Christ has been manifested fully, not only in His incarnation, but in the fullness of His Word. Given to you in preaching, given to you in written form by the Holy Spirit. You can be as the you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, that, that can't even be fully explained. But the fellowship and the joy that he speaks of is only to be found where God has placed it in the Word by the Spirit, in trusting in Christ and in His promises. Nature bears witness to the power of God, to the glory of God, to His divine nature. But it cannot show you Christ. And so to look outside in the world to know God is to run on a fool's errand. God has established the means by which you can know Him intimately and it is in His Word by the Spirit in Christ. Now, the last truth that I want you to see about Christ in this text is that He was raised from the dead and given glory. This is what Peter says of Christ at the end of verse 21, that God raised him from the dead 
gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ, as we know, suffered. He was despised by men. He was rejected by men. People, apparently, a hope of people more than the suffering endured by men. He suffered most fully under the wrath of God, bearing the full penalty in his our sins deserved. He made atonement. satisfied the demands of divine justice. And after He obeyed God, even to the point of death, He was given victory over sin and death when God raised Him from the dead. And after His resurrection, He ascended on the clouds of heaven and end of the majesty on high and was given glory and dominion and a kingdom over which He reigns even now. That glory, since installment of Christ on the throne. But notice also that Peter says his resurrection and something. He says it results in your faith and your hope being in God. What's the connection? What's the connection between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and His glory and our hope in God? I want you to remember, I want you to remember that the people that Peter is writing to, they themselves are suffering. Rejected, they're being ostracized and persecuted, probably many of them by their own families, at minimum their own communities. Just as Christ suffered, they being his disciples are also suffering. But the hope that in the same way Christ was resurrected and glorified and glorified. There's they will result in glory for in the midst of their trials they can continue rejoicing that the Gospel has brought to them. And friends, if if you are in Christ, this is the mind that you also must have among you. The resurrection 
event or a miracle that is going to remain to Christ It's not a one-time event. It's a foretaste of things that are to come. It has a spillover effect. And a spillover effect that is even now spilling over into the world and will culminate in an even greater resurrection to come. At the present time, the resurrection of Christ is spilling over into the resurrection of dead sinners being made alive by the power of the Gospel of God. capacity to obey God. You were a constant enmity with Him. You were dead. And Paul teaches very clearly in the book of Ephesians that if you now know Christ, it is because the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises you to new life. In the future, the resurrection of Christ will spill over into a universal resurrection for all who have trusted in Him. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, he says, For if we have been... We shall... ...in a resurrection like His. He doesn't say, maybe. He doesn't say... We're hoping this might work out. He says, we shall certainly. That in the same way that none of Christ's sufferings were without purpose, and in the same way that His humiliation culminated ultimately in His exit, finally in exaltation with Him. You know, we have, we have several saints here who have to deal with regular, constant, physical pain. And it's natural to wonder, why is this happening? Why, O oh God, have you given me this? And while it may not be the case that you can say, 
this here is exactly the reason why this particular cross is in your life. And while we may not be able to peer into heaven itself and see things that are going on in the spiritual realm as we are able to do with Job and his sufferings. While we may not be able to do these things, what we can confidently say is what John Newton wrote in his letter at the beginning. We can say that the one who suffered in our nature knows and sympathizes with all our weakness. He himself had pain and suffering and weakness. And yet he himself is now the supreme disposer of all that concerns us. And He is the one who numbers the very hairs of our heads, appoints every trial we meet with in number, weight, and measure, and will allow nothing to fall upon us but what shall contribute to our good. This glorious truth, as severe as our present trials may be, are but light and momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that is to come. That is the inexpressible hope that the Gospel of God in Christ has given to us. So friends, I would exhort you this day to look to Christ. That whether you are full or weak, whether you are in pain or in good health, that in all seasons, you would be looking to Christ. And in Him, you would see the outcome Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Oh, Father, we are on this day of thanksgiving most grateful. Most grateful for Christ. Particularly as we as a, a church are thinking about the many reasons we have to be thankful. Chief among them is the hope of the glory to come in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we lift up our thanks this day because just as Paul says, if we have been united to Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united to Him in a life and in a resurrection and in a glory like His. So I pray, Father, for all of those who are here who know You that you, by the work of the Spirit and your Word, would constantly fix their eyes upon Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those who do not know you, that this day you would cause the power of the resurrection to spill over into their hearts 
and raise dead sinners to new life. I pray this all in Jesus' name.